We're going to look at Amos chapter 3. Would you open your scriptures? If you did not bring a Bible, um, bring one next time. But today you can have a, a chance just right now maybe to download a free Bible app. We call it YouVersion. Um, it is a Bible app through the App Store. If you just type in uh, Bible, it should be the first one that shows up there. It's called YouVersion. And there's a tab that says events, and you can see today's notes on that events tab. It's actually launched there live even as we speak. Amos is one of the minor prophets. It is minor, not in message, just in size. It's not very long. Look at it. Nine chapters. Last week we looked at chapter one and two where Amos is a prophet who has come out of the country. He's a countryman. He's a rustic farmer, uneducated, trained by God, not self-trained. He's been given a message. He is a shepherd, a rancher, and a fig tree farmer. He's a fruit tree grower. And he goes from his northern city of Tekoa, a little, little know-nothing town just 12 miles south of Jerusalem, and he goes all the way up north to Bethel, not too far north, but a good, good hike, to the people of Israel. By this time, Israel, if you know your Old Testament history, Israel has 12 tribes. And in the ninth century, they were split under a bad king, 12 Ten tribes to the north and two tribes to the south, they, they split and they didn't get along. The two tribes to the south were called Judah after that point, and they were pretty good. It was kind of a, a, a yo-yo of good and bad kings. They get a good one and they get a bad one. In the north, though, the, 12, the ten tribes of the north never had a good king from that point on, never walked with God. They had a remnant of people who did, but the kings were pretty bad. And so God, before he sends judgment, here's a truth in Scripture, and it's a truth in this text. Before he gives judgment, there's always a shot over the bow. There's a warning shot. And in this text, we're going to see that Amos says that about himself. He says, I've been called to give this shot over the bow. And though you think I am uneducated and rustic, I have a word from God, and you better listen up. Because God is, as we saw in chapter war, one, he is roaring like a lion. And when a lion roars, he's about to pounce. We saw that in Hosea when we studied Hosea, one of the other minor prophets. We saw it in Joel when we studied Joel. When the lion roars, something's about to happen. So the lion doesn't roar without a purpose. And so if God is speaking to you today, for instance, you better hear his call. The, the call of God is the subject. I could have called that text this, the call of God. Um, I could have called it hearing him from the bottom of the pit because by the end of this chapter, Israel is totally destroyed and in that place, right? And you don't realize God is all you need till God is all you got. And when you're at the bottom of your pit, there's only one way to look, right? And that's up. Now, in the case of Israel, they had this prophecy over them and it was, we saw this last week, it was too late. Uh, the plane was going down. There's an interesting story that goes with that. A transatlantic flight has a pilot that comes over the intercom and says these words. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to be your pilot on this plane's flight. I can tell you the flight is going quite well. Nevertheless, I have to tell you about a minor inconvenience that has occurred. The passengers on the right side of the plane, if they will look out their windows, they will see that the closest engine to them is vibrating. <clears throat> now, it shouldn't worry you because this plane is equipped with four engines. 
And a vibrating engine isn't that big of a deal. Well, as long as you're looking out the right side of the plane, though, you might as well look at the other engine on that right side. You will notice that it is glowing, or more precisely, I should say, burning. <laughs> and uh, it has been that way for about 10 minutes, but I can tell you it is nothing to worry about. This plane can operate on two engines alone. And we are maintaining an appropriate altitude and speed, so nothing to worry about. Well, as long as you're looking out the side of the plane, those of you on the left side of the plane might want to look over there and that side and notice that the engine that is supposed to be there is actually missing. It fell off about 10 minutes ago. And let me tell you, we are amazed at how well this plane is holding together at this point. However, I will call your attention to something a little more serious. Those of you sitting in the middle aisles, if you look to the middle of the plane, you'll notice a crack has formed. And that is a little more disconcerting. And if you have really good eyesight, you can probably see the Atlantic Ocean through that crack. And if you have really good eyesight, you'll notice that there is a lifeboat down there. And that person in the lifeboat is your captain waving. <laughs> but everything should be fine. How does the Christian deal with that kind of piled up adversity? When thing after thing, maybe you relate to these passengers on this plane, you feel like them, everything in your life is falling apart. It seems that you're going to crash and burn. Maybe that's where you were last year. Maybe that's where you'll be next year. Dealing with adversity, they often say that the Christian is 5% action, 95% reaction. How do you react to this level of destruction. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. Maybe you're, you feel like your career is falling apart. Your finances are falling apart. Your kids are falling apart. Your emotions and your health is falling apart. What do you do? When life seems to tear you down, how do you respond? That is the title of this whole series through the Minor Prophets, Respond. How do you do it? Starting in Amos chapter 3, we get three sermons. Chapters 1 and 2, Amos looked around at the nation's and he says, they're all in bad shape, but we are in worse shape. In chapter 3 through 6, he looks within and he sees how bad a shape we are. Here in this of three sermons, the first of three sermons, all these chapters from the next few chapters are going to begin with these words. Look at verse 1. Hear this word. It's how the sermon begins. It creates a posture in the, in, the, in, the, in the listener who leans in, a Christian coming to a worship service. You're coming here to sing praises to God first and to hear a word from him second. He is worthy of your worship. He is worthy of your attention. He is worthy of your service. And he says to you, he loves you enough to reveal himself. And if the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who spoke the stars into existence, is wanting to speak to you, you lean in. That's why we care about you having a Bible, because I am, uh, I am lips saying these words. This is what you need to hear from, this word. Hear this word. You're going to see it in chapter 3, verse 1. You're going to see it in chapter 4, verse 1. You're going to see it in chapter 5, verse 1. Okay? He is going to then explain four divine calls, because as God calls, you can assume that he doesn't waste his words. If he's going to speak to you today and give you a message from Scripture, and the Bible says this is a living word, it actually has a supernatural life to it, you can be guaranteed that he's not going to waste his words. Okay? So let's look at this looking within and, and owning up to what it'll say, where it says, if you hear his voice, 
Hebrews says, do not harden your hearts, but listen. Amos chapter 1 says, hear this word. Let's look. Verse 1. Hear this word, which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel. Now remember, Amos is a country shepherd who's left his home in Tekoa, and he's gone to the king's chapel in Bethel, a false place of worship. And he is called, we'll see later in chapter 7, he's called the chaplain of Jeroboam the first. He's called him out of the chapel, and they're like looking at him going, why, who are you and why are you here? And he's from the south, but look what he says. I've come to speak against the sons of Israel, you in the north, really against the entire family, both Israel and Judah, both of them, okay, which he brought up from the land of Egypt. He rescued you, and he rescued you not just 10 tribes, but 12 tribes. You're all saved from his deliverance in Egypt, so all of you listen up. Here's the first call. You only, God says, have I called chosen among all the families of the earth. Now stop. That's unique. Israel was unique among all the nations. And he says it very clearly. It's the most common verb in all the Bible. Do you know what the most common verb in all the Bible is? Call. 20 different English words. Uh, or 20 different Greek and Hebrew words are translated as the English word call. And he says, I have called you uniquely. Now, what do you expect to read next? If, if it's a unique privilege, you expect to say him to say something about that privilege. But look what he says. He doesn't talk about the privilege. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Whoa, whoa, wait. What? You said I'm unique. I'm your special son. So now you're going to beat me? His point is, is that your unique privilege comes with a unique responsibility. And as I love you, I will speak to you. I will charge you. I will in, in, invest my life in you to make sure that you own up to those responsibilities. Unique Privilege comes with unique responsibilities. And you're not doing it. You're not being who I've called you to be. Here is the call of the Father. And it is a high calling. If you're going to write a note off to the side of verse 1 and 2, write the word, the phrase, high calling. For the Christian as well as for the Israelite, when God calls you into his family, <laughs> that is a high, holy privilege. And it comes with high, holy responsibilities. And God loves you too much to not let you, uh, to, not, to, not, to not just let you off the hook. He loves you too much to allow you to avoid those responsibilities. You have too much at stake. Here's, here's how we might say it. Because of your uniqueness, the uniqueness of God's call on your life, there is a high cost to low living. If you want to live like a child of God, then you're going to have a high calling. Here's how Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 4. That you, as Christians, if you understand your calling, you need to walk worthy of that calling. If you are truly wealthy in Christ, Ephesians chapter 1, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. You need to walk like you have every spiritual blessing. But if you live low, well, there's a high cost for low living. You have a high calling, and if you don't live up to it, then there's a high cost. You know, I, I say this so often, it hurts my head, how people will come in and they will struggle with low self-esteem and they'll struggle with all sorts of problems. And half the time, I start asking them questions about their life, and they're living lowly, so they feel lowly. And I say, well, that's God's remedial school of reaping and sowing. If you sow that seed, 
farmer, you're going to reap that harvest. Matter of fact, that's, God has built that into your constitution, that if you're going to if you're going to think low thoughts, if you're going to have stinking thinking, you're going to stink. That you want to, you, you feel lutish because you're thinking lutish. You are, you're lutish. If you are, if you're thinking lustful, if you're thinking hateful, you're and you're doing things that are hateful, you're going to feel hateful. That's the way that God has designed your psychology, right? And it's part of the plan. And He says here that he wants them to notice their high calling. Now, I want to point out a few things, a little sub-series of notes. Number one, it is a gracious call. Notice that in these verses. And notice that in all Scripture. It is a gracious call. What kind of calling? It's a gracious call. They don't deserve it. Listen to Deuteronomy 7. For you, Israel, are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord did not, however, set his love on you nor choose you because you were so large in number. Deuteronomy 7, 6. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more numerous for you were the least of all the people, but because the Lord loves you, because he would keep his oath which he swore to your fathers, therefore he chose you. You know, this principle of gracious election is all through the New Testament as well. Listen to Jesus. Jesus said, you did not choose me. I chose you. Paul reminded the Corinthian believers, not many of you were wise men in the flesh, mighty. Not many of you were noble, but you're all called. God chose foolish, the Bible says, foolish, weak, base, despised things so that flesh would show, no, would show no glory in themselves, but only in his presence, 1 Corinthians 1. So he chose you before the foundation of the world so that you would know it's not about you. Secondly, notice that this high calling is a, an exclusive call. Look at verse 2, you only have I chosen. The word indicates an intimate relationship such as that between a husband and wife. He says, I, I am intimately engaged with you, not anybody else. It's an exclusive call. And then third, it is a high calling. It is a responsible calling. Because God chose them, because he called them, because he blessed the people of Israel and Judah, they were responsible to love God and obey him. And if they didn't, he was responsible to do whatever it takes to get them back. That's what lovers do. So if you're not going to be responsible for your high calling, then God will be responsible to call you back through the high cost of low living. If you want to live lowly, you're going to feel lowly. So this high calling calls you back. God has called you as a chosen people. You are not worthy of his call, but you are to walk worthy of it. Okay, so look at verse 3. Now we see another call, second call, the call of the prophet. These next verses are Amos's attempt to say to these people who are doubting him, who is this rustic preacher talking to us? Why should we listen to him? What authority does he, does he have? All right, he gives a couple of seven to be exact, seven questions that have the point of cause and effect. Look at these. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? He's getting to the point where he's like, I am, I am a preacher teaching, I'm a prophet giving a word, and if God gave me this word, you better listen because the cause and effect is if he gave a rustic preacher this word, then it's definitely God's word. He said, if you see two people walking, you, you know that they made an arrangement to walk together. They didn't just, random people don't just come on the streets, hey, you want to walk with me? Let's walk, right? 
Second rhetorical question. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? He said that in multiple minor prophets here. The question is, if you hear a lion roaring, then you know that there is somebody about to die. There is prey. Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Cause and effect. Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Of course not. That's silly. Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If you see a mouse in a mouse trap, then you can assume that it was set and there was cheese and the trap caught it. It wasn't random. A random mouse trap thrown into a place doesn't catch a mouse. There has to be cause and effect. If a trumpet is blown in a city, verse 6, will not the people tremble? If you hear a horn in an ancient Near East city, a horn represented that an army was coming. If you heard it, you knew that somebody saw something and the whole town is going to strike up, you know, all the weapons and strike up the war cry because people are coming to, to kill you and you better protect your family. Cause and effect. If calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Look at verse 7 and 8. Here's the summary. Surely the Lord, God, does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. In other words, Amos is saying, hey, I'm preaching this at you. I'm telling you Assyria is about to take you out. This, this other government, this other army is coming. And if, if I'm saying it, then it comes from God. Because, and as he'll say later in chapter 7, I am, a, I am not the son of a prophet, nor have I gone to a prophet school. I, I am a nobody. And God told me, and I, I, didn't, I don't want to be here. I want to be with my sheep. But I've come here to tell you this because God is loving and therefore he reveals. See, that's how God works all throughout the Bible. God's revelation is an exercise of his love for you. It isn't meant to be a random word. It's not meant to be a random book set on your coffee table. It isn't meant to be a, a book that stays closed. It's meant to work in your life. It's meant to be living in your life, and dusty Bibles make dirty lives. It's meant to be used. And here's his commentary about how you respond to it. Verse 8, a lion has roared. The word of God is in your face. And God isn't wasting his words. He's not mincing his words. He is saying this and he is telling you, stop, turn around. And when the lion roars, how do you respond to a lion of the word of God roaring? Look at the question, who will not fear? Who wouldn't be scared to death? Right? It's, it's, it's the love of God that calls people to repentance, to turn, to change, to turn around. You're, you're going to destroy yourself. You're going to destroy your marriage, your relationships, your work, your life, your job, your veins. You're going to destroy your lungs. You're going to destroy who you are. And God yells at you, stop what you're doing and turn because he loves you. How much do you have to hate someone to not warn them when a, when a bus is about to hit them? They got their headphones on. They're listening to their tunes. They don't hear the bus coming. The bus is coming. How much do you have to hate them not to yell at them? Bus! And at some point, you tackle them. Amen? And some of you are heading to a place that when it comes to your marriage and your attitude and your thinking and your way of life and your drinking and the issues you have with medicating yourself, in the, I want to tackle you and say, stop. I love you too much to let you avoid, the, to, to, to avoid the call of the preacher. God has given you 
a call from the Father. God has given you a call from the prophet, and it's meant to be listened to. When God's word comes down through God's man, we listen up. When God's word through God's man comes down, we listen up. Say it with me. When God's word through God's man comes down, you better listen up. That's huge. This is healthy fear. You know, you come on a Sunday morning, that's a healthy thing to have a fear. If I don't hear from the Lord here in this worship service, then what he has for me this week, he has a word from a pastor, from a preacher, and there's a healthy fear that I might miss it. Instead, oftentimes we're indifferent and we're bored and we're not paying attention and our Bibles aren't open and we're not writing notes, but the posture of the worshiper is leaning into what God is saying, hands up. If God speaks, I'm gonna write it down. Through the Spirit of God, I'm gonna write it down. Now, the next two verses. The next two verses is the call of the witnesses. This is interesting. Here's what he says here in this, in this section. Keep reading. Verse nine, proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt. Who, which countries are those? Ashdod is the Philistines. Egypt is the Egyptians. He says, go to these pagan nations and say this to them. Assemble pagan nations. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and watch. See the great tumults within her and the oppression in her midst. In other words, witness the destruction that's coming upon these people. And this is such a terrible indictment. Look at verse 10. They do not know how to do what is right. They're that thick-headed. They do not know how to do what is right. We saw in the previous chapters, they are so selfish in their luxury. They are so focused on stuff and houses and things. They have no eyes. They have no heart for people who have less. They don't care about the less fortunate. They're so focused on wealth that they have no attention to my kingdom, God says. My kingdom My heart, God says, leans towards the poor, towards the broken. And these people in their selfish luxury are ignoring all that. But the third call is a call to humiliating shame. A call to be have the things that you give your life to fail you. A call that God's people will always be an example to the world one way or another. Either through, listen to this, either through their discipline or his discipline. Now, I mean that the word discipline two different ways, either through their self-control and their discipline to love kindness and to help people who are in need and to be people of the word and be people of God and live lives worthy of the calling with which they've been called and listening to their spiritual leaders. So disciplined in that, that they're an example to the world of what it looks like when someone loves Jesus and follows Jesus. Or... You can be an example to the world through his discipline, through this kind of humiliation where it's clear that they do not know how to do what's right. They are, there's something broke in their heads. There's something broke in their hearts, declares the Lord. Those who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels, they're broke. See, this is God's remedial school where you either become a proverb for wisdom or a proverb for wickedness. Oh, remember old so-and-so 10 years ago at First Baptist Church who did this, this, and this, and they're not seen again. Or you become a proverb. Oh, remember so-and-so in their wisdom. They answered the call of God, and, and God used it in their life. 
You can become a proverb one way or the other. In his day, Isaiah called heaven and earth to witness against Judah. Amos summons these Gentile nations to witness this. The sin of Israel was so great that even the pagan nations were appalled by it. They were appalled by what they were doing. It was tragic. It was humiliating. When an unsaved world catches a professed Christian in their sin, it is a shame. Abraham, Old Testament saint, twice was put to shame among pagan nations as he lied about his wife, Sarah. David, of course, was embarrassed before the king of Gath and because of what he did in Bathsheba's life. Samson was shamed before the Philistines in Judges chapter 16. They were all walked through a place of humiliating shame. And I could probably ask you to raise a hand, and I bet it'd be a large number of us, I would raise my hand, that God has used the call of humiliating shame, has used the call of other people witnessing my sin to get a hold of me. Uh, there's an old term. Have you ever heard the term dunce? Um, it's an old term. In the 14th century, there was a scholastic Catholic, a, a Catholic theologian who was super smart, uber smart. His name was John Duns Scotus. He was so smart in his theological thinking that they nicknamed him uh, Dr. Subtilis or Subtle Doctor because his theological formulations were just brilliant, just brilliant. Uh, his followers and his own thinking was more often called Scotus. He was um, called Scotus. Scotus was a proponent of the use of pointy hats, and his followers would use these pointy hats. They took them from the images of wizards that had these hats with these pointy tops, and they said as they thought about God that these helped focus their thinking up, that they weren't thinking about people, they were thinking about God. And it became uh, something that they would wear as an instrument of higher learning, that they would wear these hats and they would help them focus on things above, not things below. It's good. It became a sign of intelligence until the Renaissance. In the movement of rationalists, they started making fun of uh, these subtle doctors who thought about God, and they made fun of them. And in their um, derogatory statements, you start seeing cartoons come out about these men with these hats, and they put a D on it. And eventually it began to be used in schools in England and eventually in America as a way to educate somebody who was being ignorant, who couldn't be taught, who was, who was acting out in class. And they would, uh, in the earliest times, uh, in 1624, um, the term dunce, as we understand it today, uh, came in a John Ford play, The Son's Darling. And in this play, there was a table and it had dunce written on it, no hat, but they would sit the students who just couldn't get it through their thick heads, what they were learning at the table. And they'd sit them at the dunce table. Charles Dickens writes a book about 200 years later, and by that time, he gives a description in a book called The Old Curiosity Shop, 1840, and he talks about a school in America. And in that process, it had on its wall a dunce hat. And he says it in passing. And everybody at the day, by that point, had become common knowledge that that's what schools did. Of course, we know that that's not what they do today. By the 1950s in America, they stopped singling out thick-headed kids or unruly children by putting them in a chair and putting a hat on. They stopped doing that about the 1950s. In the early service, 
I had a bunch of people raise their hand that they remember dunce hats being used in their schools. Anybody in here remember dunce hats being used? Wow. All right, yeah, three or four back there. Wow. All right, a lot has changed. I do not think that that is the best way to educate children in our public school systems. But you know, God often does that in our own lives where he uses the humiliation of it all to teach you. You wanna live lowly, you're gonna feel lowly and people are gonna think lowly of you. And then the question is, when your stinking thinking gets you stinking, what are you gonna do to clean yourself up? Well, there is no other source of cleansing that can clean down deep in your soul to the granny beads. Remember that phrase? You ever heard the phrase granny beads? Where you work outside. I remember growing up, uh, going to our family's ranch. And we'd play outside and play outside. And we'd come in and they have one bathtub. And my grandma would get us in there and she'd say, I remember my dad's mom saying, get down to the granny beads. Because you'd work outside so much, you'd get this little dirt up in the cracks, right? And you'd have to scrub down deep to get that dirt and they beat up these little things of dirt. Well, Jesus Christ can cleanse you down to the soul of the dirtiness that's causing you to be such a jerk in your marriage or so selfish in your job or so weak in your need for self-medication. He gets down to the granny beads of your soul and he wants you to come to him. Why would you stay in the humiliation of it all? Come out of it. Here's, here's the reason the lion roars there in your life because he doesn't want you to get to this last point. This last part is the call of judgment itself. And I titled this message, you see the title up there on the screen? Anybody think that was a little weird? Why not call this the, a view from the pit? Why call it two leg bones and a piece of an ear? Well, verse 12 has that language. Look at this. Verse 11, therefore says the Lord God, an enemy, even one surrounding the land, will pull down your strength from, your, from you and your citadels will be looted. This happens in 720 BC, it's the Assyrians. They're knocking on the door. And when they come, here's the call of this judgment. Thus says the Lord, just as a shepherd, a rancher, snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs and a piece of an ear. Now, why would they do that? A shepherd in this day doesn't own the sheep. And if he lets the lion take the carcass off into its cave and not grab something, how can he prove that he didn't sell the sheep and cheat the owner? So in their day, this is well documented, they would try to grab any part, a scrap, a tip of an ear, something. And then they would leave the sheep in the field because the lion went off, he's full, so he's not gonna come back. And you would take it, you'd leave the sheep and you'd go back to the owner and say, okay, I lost a sheep, I know they're valuable. Here's proof, positive, that I didn't sell the sheep. I didn't eat it and feed my own belly. In this prophecy, though, it's saying that Israel is going to be so judged that all they're going to be left is a couple of leg bones and a piece of an ear. Total destruction. But it alludes to one of the great theological truths of your Old Testament. We call it remnant theology. This is a promise of a remnant. There will be leftovers. God will not so destroy you that there's not something for him to resurrect. It might be an empty womb or an empty tomb, but he can birth a baby in it and he can bring life out of it. And God works that way. He waits for Abraham and the promise. He waits for Sarah's womb to be dead and gone. 90 years old, 100 year old man, 90 year old woman, her womb is dead and gone. And then not trusting in her own strength. The view from the bottom of the pit is up. Only looking up, they trust in 
God and he provides Isaac. Remember why they named him Isaac, Isak? It means in Hebrew, laughter. They were so amazed that God would do this. What? Having birth at 90? I don't know if we have any 90-year-olds in here, but if you have a baby, we would all enjoy that. That would be great laughter, right? Maybe some crying on some parts too, I don't know. But that would be wild, a 90-year-old. God does things when things are dead and gone. You think there is no hope in your marriage? There is no such thing as no hope when you have a man who walks out of a grave. That's why Jesus sits in the tomb dead for three days. That's why Lazarus sat in the tomb dead for four days when there was no hope in the flesh. See, this is a hopeful remnant. You might feel like you've lost everything here today. You might have felt like 2016, you lost everything. But the truth of it is, you haven't lost everything. You still have your life. You still have the word of God. You still have people of God who love you and who will walk you through it. You haven't lost everything. You might have lost a chance with a job or a chance with an individual or a chance with a school, but you haven't lost God. You don't realize God is all you need till God is all you got. Or let me say it this way. When God's child is down to nothing, God is up to something. When you've lost it all in the New Testament, see, this is Israel. We're, we're talking about God, God's people, Israel, corporately, nationally. When it goes over into the New Testament, we've got to contextualize it here. The truth of the matter is this fourth level, this fourth call is a call that probably most of us have walked through. I don't know that anybody in here got through the curriculum of spiritual anything, spiritual greatness, spiritual remedial school, you can't get through it without coming to the end of yourself. You just can't. Where you fill that hole in your heart and you try to fill it with all sorts of other stuff and then you recognize nothing on this planet can fill my emptiness and then you begin to think, maybe I was made for something otherworldly. And then you look to God and he fills you. When God's child is down to nothing, God is up to something. Let me read the rest and then I want to apply this. Here we go. All right, look at the rest of verse 12. Just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs, a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed. In their luxury, the cover of a couch. In their luxury, it's all gonna be taken from them. You wanna worship as a child of God. You wanna worship a false lover of Wall Street. You wanna worship a false lover of that house on your main street. You wanna worship something that's less than what God wants for you. He will take it from you because he's a good father. Good fathers take in order to give because they aren't going to raise, they are not going to raise spoiled children. And so in the New Testament, God takes, and in their luxury, he takes it. Keep reading. Verse 13, testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. For on the day, God of hosts has the idea of armies. On that day of army, I will punish Israel's transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel, gone. False altar, gone. The horns of the altar, cut off. That false place of worship, I'm not going to allow you to worship at that place anymore. And they will fail, fall to the ground. And I will smite their winter houses together with their summer houses. All that luxury, I'm going to take it out. A hurricane's going to come through and get your beach house out of here so that you can focus on me. Because life is not about the collection of beach houses. The most important things in life are not things. There's more important things in life. And if you are gazing at those things and glaring at those things and ignoring those things, God's going to get a hold of you. The houses of ivory will also perish, and the great houses will come to an end. Gone, declares the Lord. 
So there are several important lessons that the New Testament adds to this hopeful remnant, this hope in the middle of brokenness. Here it is. When, when it comes down to it and everything falls apart, remember that God restores. He loves to restore. God's promise of restoration is in Amos 9. He says, in that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. It comes in this book. David's tent is the idea of David's lineage, king lineage. He says, I'm going to bring a king like David. Jesus is the emphatic exclamation point that God restores. He is the one who resurrects. He resurrects jobs. He resurrects lives. He resurrects marriages. He resurrects mental disorders. He resurrects everything. If you're struggling with anything, God can do anything. Everything falls apart. God restores. You see this all throughout the Bible. Job loses everything, his wealth, his children, his health. He finds himself lying in a dust and dust scraping boils off his broken pottery, yet in the end, God restores him. 1 Samuel chapter 30, David and his men return from battle and their homes are burned. Their wives and their children are taken captive. The David's men begin stoning David. Do you remember that story? David encouraged himself in the Lord and God told him to pursue and overtake and they recovered all their wives and all their kids. Peter, whew, impetuous Peter, failed miserably. right out rejected Jesus three times. And at the end of the gospels, at the end, right at the end of his 40 days of post-resurrection appearance, Jesus in his resurrected body makes a point to go on a fishing trip with Peter so that he can ask him three very important questions. And he can reinstate Peter. Three denials, three statements of worship for Peter. I'm Jesus, you're mine. Take all of me. Feed my sheep. Take all of me. Feed my sheep. And notice the love God, love other in that work of Peter. God delights in res- restoration. Number two, when everything falls apart, remember God remains. In the story of the two leg bones and the piece of an ear, the shepherd has to leave the sheep and go show them to the owner. But the truth of the New Testament is God will never leave you nor forsake you. That finance might leave you, that job might leave you, that spouse might leave you, that Hobby might leave you, that health might leave you, that sport you love might leave you, but God will never, ever, ever, ever leave you. And the truth of it all is that everything has a built-in failure rate, but God does not. They have built-in obsolescence, but God does not. They have built-in, we call it entropy, they have built-in disorder. Your room, your house, your stuff, your car rusts, your house gets termites, it all is meant to not last, so that you will know emphatically that Jesus always remains with you. And then third and last, everything falls apart. Remember, the New Testament puts another exclamation point here, God redeems. What does this mean? It means he uses it. Redeems means to buy it back and to take advantage of it. God will take all your brokenness and turn it into beauty. God will take every heartache and use it to help somebody else with the same heartache. He will take every hurt, every pain, and he will redeem it and use it. That's the promise of Scripture. The question is, will you join him in all that? That's, we, we don't see God using our pain, but the promise of Scripture is that he will not waste one millisecond of your suffering. Why do we not see it? Because we don't join him in it. We don't answer the call. So my question to you is, which call do you need? Do you need the call of the father to be his child? 
You've been fighting him. He wants you to be his child so bad. He wants you to be a part of his family. He loves you and he has died. He has sent his son to die on the cross for you to make, get, allow nothing to stand in the way of him. And you have not answered the call. And the lion is roaring. And it's a lion that roars because hell is real and hell is coming. And so it yells. He yells in the process and he says, there is a way. Is it a call to prophecy, a call to be a, a pastor, a call to be a minister? Some of you have had a call on your life to be a prophet, to be a teacher, to be a leader, and you haven't answered that call. I think this text is so encouraging. Amos is so encouraging to those of you, those of us that feel inadequate because that's who God uses. He uses people that feel inadequate so they don't glorify in their flesh, they glorify in him. And then the third call, the call to take a whiff to get downwind of yourself and smell the shame that you've piled on your back, right? In New King James, it'd be, you stinketh, right? There's a smell coming off of you. People, you're wondering why you're struggling with your friendships, why you're struggling in your relationships. It's because of you. You take ownership for you first. You can't change anybody else, but with the power of God in your life, you can change you. So maybe that's it. It's a call of a remedial school, or maybe it's a call of a remnant. Man, everything's broken. I, I hurt for you if that's where you're at today. You feel completely in despair. You feel like two leg bones and a piece of an ear. But do not reject the call of God. He is, we sang it, Christ is your Savior. Let me end with an old, old story. A boy and a man are walking in the woods in a country that has lions and in this old story, I mean, we're talking hundreds of years old, this was first told. The men, the boy and the father come upon a pit. It was a lion's pit, a pit that they would trap lions in. And they notice a man in there. And he looks exhausted. He'd been in there all day trying to scramble out. He'd been scraping and scrambling and no good. And he'd given up. And they recognize the predators in the area will, uh, could fall in, another lion could fall in there and eat this man. They, we got to get this guy out of this hole right now. And they look around and they see a tree, and on that tree is a branch. It looks brittle, but there's a, there's a vine up there. And I don't know if it'll hold, the branch underneath it, I don't know if it'll hold my weight. But the little boy says, Daddy, let me do it. I'm, I'm light. Can I have your pocket knife? I'll get up there. And they fight over that. Oh, no, you're not going to do that. Not for somebody I don't even know. He says, okay. So the boy scrambles up onto the tree. Small boy volunteers, he crambles up, scrambles up, and the light weight is bore by the first branch. It's bore by the second branch. The third branch, he per perches on it, and he gets a purchase and grabs the vine and cuts it with the knife, and the vine falls from that branch down into the pit. And at that very moment, the branch that he's sitting on breaks, and the boy falls to immediate death, breaks his neck. As the father holds his broken, lifeless body of his precious son to his breast and he weeps, he hears the voice of a man in the pit calling to him. He steps over to the edge of the hole and he looks down and the man says these words to him from the pit. Look, I'm very sorry for your son, but that vine that's in this hole attached to that branch, that doesn't look like it'll hold my weight. I don't, I don't see it. It looks too brittle. I think you should provide another way a safer way for me to get out of this pit. And the father stood silently, looking down for just one moment, then in a controlled anger, quietly said this to the man, 
My son died providing a way for you to be saved. And the only way that you're going to get out of this pit is if you take advantage of it. And that's how we treat God when it comes to the rescue of our lives and the things that get us out of our holes. We humans are so good getting into holes, but we look at his salvation and the cost that it costs and we treat it cheaply and we don't take advantage of it. Whatever hole you're in, the son is your savior. Let's pray. Father, for those that need to call, answer the call of the Father right now, I pray that they would answer that this way. They would say, dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and my whole is sin and I'm in need of a Savior. My whole is eternal and I'm in need of an eternal answer. My whole, my whole is human, but it needs, it's so big, it needs a divine answer. So I answer that call, save my soul. Save my soul from hell. Save my soul from the hell I'm living in. For others here, they need to answer the call of ministry. They've been fighting you for a long time. You've said that you've wanted them to be your rustic preacher from Tekoa, and they will not do it. But today can be a different day. They can say to you, Jesus, send me. Use me. That's a scary prayer. But I answer the call of ministry. I answer the call of teaching. I answer the call of leadership. Others need to get downwind of themselves. They're too, they're, 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 their heads are too thick, and they can't sense how far they've fallen. And I pray that the shame of their situation would wake them up to the beauty of your call. You call us to wash in the blood of Jesus. You call us to wash in his cleansing power down to the granny beads, down to the dirtiest parts of our soul. You wash us deep. And others in here, they have lost everything. When they've lost everything, you're up to something. I know you are, Jesus. You've done it so many times. You've done it for thousands of years. You use our deepest holes to lift us up to the highest places. You call us to come out of the tomb of our situation, and we say to you, yes, live for the right things. Live for the eternal things. That's the call of, of, the, of the remnant. Call us, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.